Okay, Bokertov, uh, this uh, Shabbos we have the privilege of reading Parshas Bechukosai, which uh, very often uh, the Parshas are read together, so we don't get a chance to uh, focus and emphasize on the uh, the second Parsha, which is Bechukosai. So I want to start this morning. I mean, the brief overview is pretty simple. The Parsha is made up of three uh, parts. You've got the blessings and the curses, that's two parts. Torah Barsha begins with a list of the blessings if you uh, obey God's will and you follow His directives and you embrace Him in your life, um, then uh, we're, our life is filled with blessing. What exactly that blessing is, I think we talked about last year, how that blessing expresses itself. Um, then uh, then it goes into the Tochacha. We have Tochacha appears twice in the Torah, the rebuke. And the, uh, this is the first time. And it has a long graphic description of what life will be like if we disobey God, if we dismiss God, if we disregard God's will, then we make ourselves subject to the elements. And this is a harsh reading of the worst that the elements uh, can impose upon us when we don't have divine protection. And then the, final, the uh, conclusion of the Parsha deals with the issue of Erechen, which are when a person makes a nether, when a person makes a vow to bring an offering commensurate with their value, with the value of another individual, the value of their wife, the value of their animal, and, uh, and so on. The redemption of those pledges of those, uh, of those vows. Okay? I didn't understand that. Erechen? Yeah. Yeah. In other words, it's a nether, it's a vow that you'll bring an animal sacrifice equivalent to what your value is. You have to determine Erechem, it's the Mishnayis and Gemara, what exactly, how do you determine Erechem? The wife's value is in Eshmael. That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Why are you telling right. him? Tell her. <laughs> if you ask, if you ask the wife, the husband, yeah, if they ask the wife, the husband's bringing a carbon on behalf of himself. He barely has to pay anything. He's worthless. And if he has to bring on behalf of her, and he, he'll, he'll never be able to afford it. She's priceless. So uh, anyway, okay. But what I wanted to spend our time on this morning is um, is beginning from Shlishi. Shlishi, as in when Bichukosa is read as a single parsha. It's interesting that the Bahar is. Um, on the land, which is very visible. If you don't do it in the land, you lose it. Right. But this is okay, spiritual. Yeah. Okay, so last year we focused on the first few psukim, on the first uh, two aliyahs in the parsha, short aliyahs, but aliyahs, that, uh, that deal with the blessings and how they express themselves. Interesting you point that out, George, because the truth is, if you notice, all of the brachas also are described and in the context of land. Right? Venasati uh, ha'aretz yivula. Uh, if you read, you'll see that the blessings all describe themselves in conjunction and connection with the land also. So anyway, beginning with, uh, with Shlishi, which is not a real break. In other words, again, our real breaks are the Stumos and the Psuchos based on the Samach or the Pei. That shows us where the Torah, where the author of the document, namely the Kosh Baruch himself, saw there being a natural break. But we'll just use it as a delineating uh, demarcation. Pasuk describes that again, if if you're following God's will, and if you are living the lifestyle that He uh, designs for us, then you'll eat very old grain, and you'll remove the old to make way for the new. What does that mean, you'll eat old grain? We'll have something left over from the prior times. Oh, so... Um, The Rashi points out, Rashi quotes the med, from the Medrash, Torah's Kohanim. It's not going to get stale. That you, first of all, you'll have surplus, but your surplus will never grow stale. And that's a blessing. To have surplus, but have to throw it out, have it mold, have it decay, is not a blessing. To have surplus, but have it remain fresh and uh, new, that is a uh, blessing. What about the second half? And remove the old to make way for the new. The new grain will be so um, abundant that you'll have to empty out the storehouse to make room for it. You'll have to start to rent space in storage facilities and units. Because you'll say, I'm just, I'm so overflowing with blessing, I don't have room in my house, I don't have room in my warehouse. But you need to rent warehouses and warehouses. So that indeed, of course, is a great physical blessing. The granos is the place where they actually grind it. Yeah. 
New storehouses, that's what Rashi says. You'll have to tzrichim atem lefanosa otsaros lamakam acher to a new place. You'll have to empty the storehouses to a new place in order to make room for the abundant grain that will grow. And the next pasuk, God says, I will place my uh, dwelling in your midst. And this is the perplexing clause. What does that mean? I will not despise you. God says, I will not become disgusted by you. You will not become despicable to me. That's a very unusual bracha. <laughs> it's a very unusual bracha. Right. What kind of bracha is that? A left hand. It's very unusual. Imagine that uh, you propose to a girl. You're dating, you're courting her. You have a wonderful dating uh, experience. It's time to get married. You fall in love with her. You want to get engaged. You propose to her. You say, you know, I, I see us as sharing life goals. I think that you're beautiful. I'm very attracted to you. Do you know that you inspire me spiritually? I want to build a family with you. And I share visions with you. And I want you to know that you'll never be repulsive to me. What kind of a... It's like, don't sweat as much as the other girls. (laughs) You'll you'll never... You'll never... And I want you to know, I'll never be disgusted by you. You'll never be repulsive to me. What kind of a... Is that a romantic proposal? Because Baruch Hu, you're saying, you follow my will, you follow my word... So I want you to know which we'll look at in a moment what that means. What does it mean when God promises I will place my dwelling among you and you'll never become despicable. I'll never despise you. What kind of bracha is I'll never despise you? So no matter what you do, even though it is despicable, I won't. Unconditional love. Oh, so I, I agree. It's hard to call this unconditional love when it's based on the condition of observing God's will. But, but... I agree with you. That's what strikes me. You have to understand that the whole parsha is describing so much more than just a simple a matter of obedience to a set of laws. The parsha is describing a very way of life. You'll notice a word that is repeated over and over and over in this parsha, and it's the word or a form of the of the verb of the uh, shorash of halicha of halacha. In bechukosai telechu. If you walk in my ordinances. Which, of course, Rashi interprets as a melem b'Torah that one has to be dedicated in toil and Torah. But in mechul kosai teilechu, v'hisalachti b'sochachem, then I will walk within you. But v'hisalachta mimi b'keri, we're going to get to with the negative punishments that if you will halacha halicha, if you will walk with me with keri, what's keri? Not the secretary in the office. Who's keri? Keri comes from the word mikra. Rashi quotes when it comes to a malik. When it says Amalek Asher Korcha Baderach, which is the same root as Keri, Rashi gives three interpretations. Keri comes from Kor, which means cold. So one interpretation here, if you apply the same three interpretations from Amalek, that Imalach Tamim Bekeri means if you're cold to me. God says if you're cold to me. If our relationship is not warm, if our relationship is not animated, it's not vibrant, it's not dynamic, it's cold. It's a cold relationship, then I will be cold to you and I will withdraw my countenance from you. Another interpretation of Rashi is not not from core as in cold, but as in as in uh, mikra, happenstance. Mikra means I ran into you, bimikra. If you're in Israel, you say, "Oh yeah, bimikra." I was at the supermarket today and I saw so and so. Bimikra means by chance, randomness, happenstance, and we don't have time to get into. It, but of course, that's the whole philosophy of Amalek. It's a very dangerous thing today that it's one of the most popular words among teenagers. For the last number of years, it's been. That's so random, Dad. Random. They use the word random. When I was a kid, who used the word random? You know, when I was a kid, if someone used the word random, you'd say, "Wow, it's quite an impressive vocabulary." Today, every kid, it's random. Oh, it's random. You're, you're so random. It's a very dangerous philosophy. It's a very dangerous philosophy. Essentially, it's the philosophy of Amalek, and it's the attitude that Amalek tried to impose an influence upon us. Of mikra, of chance, of happenstance. There's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no order to the universe. It's all chance, it's happenstance, it's random. Everything that happens is random. So God in our Pasha says, If your attitude towards me and towards the world in which you live is that it's mikra. I'm not here, it's the rules of nature. It's chance. So vim halachtem. Then v'halachtem imchem b'chamas keri. God says, you walk with me, keri. I walk back to you with keri. 
So what words do you see over and over and over again in our parsha? In bechukosai teilechu, v'hisalachti b'stochachem, imalachta mimi bekeri, v'alachti imachem b'chamaskeri. What's the theme of the parsha? I would say it's this concept of not dry law, but the concept of halacha. What is halacha? We call halacha law. Jewish law is halacha, but if you translate the word halacha, what is halacha? Halacha means going. It's a journey. It means walking in a particular way. Halacha is about a relationship. Halacha is about a consistent commitment. Halacha is about not being casual, but being consistent. Hashem tells us that if there's a meaningful relationship, then if you if there's halacha in it's not that you're just keeping a random set of laws, but halacha you're on a journey. If you're on a journey with me, then lo segal nafshi eschem, you'll never be repulsive to me. And what does it mean? So I think uh, I think Yechevi was the one who suggested it. It happens to be that it's a very romantic way of proposing. Because if you say to a woman, I want you to know no matter how many babies we have, and how much weight you may gain, how many wrinkles you may form, no matter how, what may happen with the affirm- infirmities of age, you, no matter what financial situation we may be in, you, no matter what, uh, I want you to know you'll never be repulsive to me. I'll always adore you, you'll always be beautiful to me, no matter what. No matter what. If you go bald, you'll always be beautiful to me. In, in a way, it may be shocking or startling to the 19-year-old or 22-year-old girl who's proposed in that manner. But later in life, she would have appreciated retrospectively how absolutely romantic it is if the husband would propose and say, I will love you so much that you'll never be repulsive to me, no matter what. So, I, I stop short of using the term unconditional love because, of course, this is all in response to im im, if... But I think what God is pledging is, if you embrace a warm relationship with me, if you embrace a lifestyle of halacha, if you're walking with me, not just doing these laws, and because I think this is one of the, just as a brief aside, it's one of the biggest challenges of our generation. It's one of the reasons that teenagers, I think, not only teenagers, that so many in the Orthodox community are yet uninspired because they are exposed to a world of rote, of rules, of laws, of do's and don'ts, of behaviors and actions. And they forget about the world of halacha. Not halacha as in law, halacha as in and that life is a journey, it's a relationship. It's a longing to be close. It's a rendezvous with the Almighty. It's intimacy with the Almighty. Halacha is a journey towards intimacy with the Almighty. And that if we have to show that the Shabbos and the Kosher and the Brachos and the Shatnas and the Lashon Hara and the, all of that is a framework to, to, to be on a journey towards intimacy with the Almighty. It's on a, it, all of that is a framework towards a warm relationship with our Creator. And then indeed we reap the bracha, that if we have that warm relationship with God, we won't be repulsive to Him. Yes, Sue. I just Oops. Can you fill in the line for me? Sure. You just said a couple of sentences ago, Rashi said something with Amelu or something like that. What, what is that? Yeah, the opening, the opening Rashi and the Pasha. It says, If you'll walk in my decrees, and you'll observe my mitzvahs, and do them. So Rashi is bothered. We already said, you'll keep my mitzvahs. So what did it mean if you, you walk in my chukos? Aren't chukos part of mitzvahs? So what was it referring to? So Rashi is quoting from the Medrash, Torah is calling him. What it means is, Shatihu Amelim Batorah. Amelim is a word from the Medrash. Amelim is a word from the Medrash. Amel means to, um, to toil, to work hard, to exert great effort. Which means essentially, it's another way of saying, not to have a casual relationship with Torah. Amelis could be understood in the in the base medrash sense as as breaking your teeth over a tosfos to steig. You don't just learn the Gemara and you struggle with one word, so you say, okay, let's turn the page. But you break your teeth over that tosfos. You spend four hours till you finally figure it out. So in the classic sense, that's what Amelis is. But I'm suggesting that in the context of this notion of the hisalachti b'sochachem b'chukosai teilechu and so on in the in the world of halacha, see, Amelim b'Torah means don't have a casual relationship. It's the same, again, you just you create with the analogy of going to the gym. If you go to the gym and you have a casual relationship with the machines, you're not going to get much out of it. You're going to walk outside, right? I spoke about this on Shabbos HaGadol. The person who goes into the gym and says, totally uninspired, I don't like the music, and I don't like the trainer, and they stand on the side of the room watching, and they leave and they say, I don't know what, I don't really get much out of this, what's the point of it? 
You'd say, you moron, you didn't touch any of the machines. You got to work out. And don't blame the music and don't blame the trainer. Work out. And you'll see the same is true with shul. That people who come in, sit back in their chair, expecting inspiration to happen to them. Not inspired, the chazan, the rabbi, the shul. Again, that doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to provide the best we can with all of those things. I'm not... Uh, abrogating our responsibility towards providing the greatest chazan, trying to provide you the best rabbi, and so on. I'm just saying that ultimately it's up to the person to put in their effort. So that's what it means. You don't walk into a religious, inspirational, spiritual opportunity in a casual way and expect it to happen to you. But it requires amelis, it requires effort, it requires toil, and so on. What? You should write about that. Nobody reads. The, nobody reads a little letter. Yeah. The word. Yeah. Nafshi is God's nefesh. Isn't that interesting? Right. That, I also noticed that. No. Right. You'll never be repulsive to me. I won't be disgusted to you by you. What is nafshi? God is referring to nafshi, my nefesh, like my soul will never be. Rashi picks up on this. Ein ruchi Ruchi, my spirit. My spirit won't be disgusted by you. What was the first half of the Pasuk? Vinasati mishkani b'sochachem. God says, I will place my mishkan. So a couple interpretations. The Ibn Ezra writes, V'lo sifchadu sh'tavo li'olam l'yidei chesaram ki kvodi dar yimachem. I don't want you to fear. Don't worry that you'll ever come to be lacking because my honor dwells among you. In other words, it's truly the greatest bracha. It's two years ago, Shabbat Shuvah, when I spoke about, three years ago, whenever it was, I spoke about Amuna and Bitachon. I spoke about feeling Hashem's presence in your life. And I described that that summer I had been reading about it and learning about it and working on it, actively working on it, and the incredible sense of peacefulness that can overcome you if you embrace Amuna. But if you're somewhere and you're struggling and you, you, you feel that angst, you feel yourself tighten up, you feel that worry, you feel the anxiety, and then you go, whoa, I'm sticking with God. I forgot that He's in control and He said, stick with me. I'm sticking with Him and everything's going to be okay. And I described, maybe right or wrong, how I was driving back from an event and I had to stop at a gas station off 95. It was in the worst neighborhood in, in North Miami area and I was getting out of the car and there were some sketchy personalities and I started to feel oh my god uh, I hope I'm not going to get killed tonight or get robbed at gunpoint which happens often I understand in North Miami trying to get gas and I started to feel that angst and feel that tightening and I said whoa I'm about to give a shear next week it was like before Shabbat Shuvah I'm about to tell 600 people that you got to take a deep breath and stick with God it's all in his hands and I felt I realized that and I stopped I took that deep breath I said it's a I felt this incredible feeling of calm of peace that just, look, it's in Hashem's hands. I have no gas. I had to stop. Maybe I planned poorly and I shouldn't have had to stop in this neighborhood. But I had to stop. I have no gas. And now it's in Hashem's hands. And what, what worrying will get me nowhere. What a sense of peacefulness. And they robbed you anyway. No. No. The gas station might have robbed me with a price, but, the, uh, but nobody else robbed me. So that's what the Ibn Ezra is saying. That v'nasati mishkani b'sochachem. Look at... The bracha in and I would argue this is not an external bracha. This is not a bracha that if you do A, then God will provide B. This is an automatic bracha. If you are embracing a life of emunah and bitachon, look at the automatic, inevitable result that you feel calm and peace and have no anxiety because you'll realize Hashem is with you. You're never alone. Or I'd liken it to, you know, sometimes, uh, now my oldest daughter or my other daughters will be home with the other kids and Yechav and I will both not be home and one of them will call us and say, I just needed to hear your voice. I realized there was no one home with me. I got scared for a minute and everything. You know? So it's the same kind of thing. It's the image I have. I'm in this world. I, I feel alone. I'm nervous. And then I call Hashem and I just say, I'm just checking in because I felt, I felt nervous. I felt alone. God says, I live, I live with you. I'm always home. The Ibn Ezra. Okay. He goes even further. He says, and he implies in the, in the rest of it that the I'm not like another person here that Ibn Ezra interprets the second half of the Pasuk as not I won't be repulsed 
not how do they, my spirit will not reject you, but I can't. I'm not limited to living in one place. That's how Ibn Ezra understands it. And Ibn Ezra says this is not contingent on the base of Mikdash. Correct. The Nasati Mishkani for the Ibn Ezra is a bracha that applies at all times. If you embrace God, you'll feel His presence in your life. You'll realize He loves you. What a bracha to feel His presence, His calming hand on your shoulder, His warm and loving embrace, His countenance, His warmth, His radiance. That, that's not contingent or dependent on a Beis HaMikdash or a Mishkan. That's at all times. That's the Ibn Ezra. Says the Sforno, Svarna also says that what, what's going on in the Pasuk is, is I'm not limited to one place. My daughter is nervous to be alone. She wants to be with her Abba, but wherever I am, that's where I am. If I'm at a meeting and not home, I'm not with her. If I'm home, she can be calm, I'm with her. Says the Baruch Hu, I have the capacity to be anywhere and everywhere. And therefore you have nothing to worry about because wherever you are, I am. Wherever you are, I am with you. I am with you. It's so parental, the love of a parent for the child. Yeah. Yeah. The ultimate. Rashi understands it in a little more limited sense. Not wherever you are, I'm with you. Vanasati Mishkani, Rashi says, Zebes Amikdash. He says, this is a bracha for, if not the individual Jew is living properly, they feel Hashem, this is a collective bracha. If nationally we are behaving the way we should be, then we will deserve God's dwelling among us, namely, there will be a Beis HaMikdash. Okay, continuing. Actually, I wanted to look at the Ramban there. The Targum goes even further. It doesn't mention a Beis HaMikdash. I will give the Shekhinah to you. It doesn't, even though it's on the word Mishkani. Correct. The Targum, that's a simple understanding. That's how the Sforna, that's how the Ibn Ezra, that's how most understand is that it's not talking about the Beis HaMikdash. Targum also understands it that way. It's not a physical structure. God's not making a physical promise. God is, uh, God is saying, uh, I will be wherever, wherever you are, which is a huge bracha. The Ramban quotes Rashi, and the Ramban expands upon it. But I want to skip in the Ramban, not the first three paragraphs. Okay, the third paragraph. Vinea Bracha Sa'ila. See anyone following in the Ramban? If you're following in the Ramban, it's the third paragraph in my layout. It begins with the words, Vihinei Habracha Sa'ila Kfipshutan. The Ramban's making a comment about these brachos. These are different types of brachos. The Torah earlier in Shmos gave us brachos in a very uh, succinct way. There in the succinct expression of the brachos, it was that we'll have bread to eat, we'll have water to drink, and we will be without illness. Here, it's an expanded version that deals more with rain, with being satiated and satisfied, with having peace and tranquility, with period of Arivia, with having uh, many children and promulgating. The Ramban has a general the Ramban Nachmanis has a general approach to the concept of miracles which we're not going to take the time now to develop there's a fundamental difference disagreement between the Ramban and the Rambam Nachmanis and Maimonides in their approach to miracles Revealed miracles, hidden miracles, and so on. So the Ramban says, as I've explained to you elsewhere, I want you to know the natural world is also a miracle. Did they? The Ramban. Sorry, did they live in the same time? Uh, they overlapped. They overlapped, but uh, only for a few years. The Ramban, <coughs> the attitude is that the natural order, the natural world, is also a miracle. It's what's called a nes nister. It's a hidden miracle. It's a hidden miracle. What's a hidden miracle? For the Ramban, a hidden miracle means if one wants to see it exclusively as a natural phenomenon and not a miracle, a hand of God at all, one can. It's a hidden miracle. As opposed to a revealed miracle where it's much more explicitly the hand of the Almighty. 
So, if a person is acting properly, conducting themselves properly, and therefore merits to be illness-free, and to have children, and to be blessed with prosperity, is that a miracle? It's a miracle. But is it a revealed miracle or a hidden miracle? It's a hidden miracle. I was teaching a, a group of boys uh, from the high school the other day, and uh, the topic, my ta- when I teach in the high school, my um, I have boys, a group of boys that I teach every week, and um, the overriding theme that I speak to them about are things that you never talk about in your 12 years of formal Jewish education. That's, that's what guides the things I want to talk to them about. Because to me, it boggles the mind. This is not a statement about our schools, which are all wonderful and outstanding. I reflect back on my Jewish education. But you go through 12 years of formal Jewish education, there's a lot of things you never talk about, like God. <laughs> like, how do you know there's a God? Or divine will versus human initiative. Or the Jewish view of... of uh, Creation, the Jewish view of uh, dinosaurs, Jewish view of homosexuality, Jewish view. Anyway, so this class I was talking to the kids about God loves you. I realized one of the things they never hear, 12 years, Jewish education, maybe they do today, but I don't think I heard, is that Hashem loves you. That all of this is Hashem's way of showing love to you. Hashem loves you, Hashem loves you, Hashem loves you. So I asked the class, how many of you feel Hashem loves you? A few hands go up. How many feel Hashem, don't feel Hashem loves you? A bunch of other hands go up. So one of the kids who. Hashem doesn't love him. Why? Why do you feel that way? So the kid says to me, I don't have the bike I want. He says, 360, maybe one day a year I ask something from Hashem, and he gives it 364 days a year. He's nowhere to be found. I don't see him in my life. He's nowhere to be found. How could you tell me he loves me? So I say to this kid, I know the kid well, I say to the kid, let me ask you a question. Did you wake up this morning? Yeah. You put your feet on the bed, on the ground. You, you, your legs working, your arms working, your eyes working, your ears working, your nose working. Yeah. You have any, God forbid, illnesses or challenges physically uh, that you're facing? Nope, perfectly healthy. You live in a big, beautiful home, maybe one of the biggest homes in the sur- Yeah, beautiful home. You have parents, uh, intact family structure. Your parents love you, and there's a functional family relationship. Oh yeah, my parents are wonderful. They're, they express a lot of affection to me. You have an iPhone, an iPad, a, a, uh, a flat screen TV, a uh, name every gadget you can name. Oh yeah, I have all of those things. What do you do in the summer? Oh, I'm going to this awesome, expensive sleepaway camp program where you travel internationally. Oh, cool. Where did you do Pesach? We went away to this hotel. It was unbelievable. Um, I say, and you can, do you go to a private day school with teachers who are excellent and love? On and on and on and on and on and on. I say, does, does Hashem love you? What's the shame have to do with any of that? <laughs> so, an accident. So, that's exactly that's exactly this from Ban. I'm not blaming the kid. It's a it's something I don't think any of us are that different than the kid. We woke up this morning. Our feet worked. That got us here to the shear. We have a roof over our head. We have a car that got us here. We live in a time of incredible technological advancement comfort beyond our wildest imaginations. Now you can get a new car where your seat can either be heated or it can be air-conditioned. Who dreamt a seat could be blowing cold air air-conditioned? We live in a time of incredible creature comforts and we say, does Hashem love us? Now, of course, I don't want to take the time kids got into, but what about someone who doesn't have all those things? What if a kid said, you know, we're practically homeless because our house is in foreclosure, my parents are divorced, my parents are not affectionate whatsoever, and I don't have this and I don't have that. Does Hashem love me? Even more, because he got a challenge. Oh. So to them I said, just ask, I said, go ask, step up to Rabbi Klein or Cantor Wax or Martin Judovitz and ask them if they feel Hashem loves them. And after what they went through in their life story, I guarantee you they will say yes. Does that mean every survivor feels it? No. But if they could feel it with what they went through, ask them why and how, then any of us have the capacity to feel it. I don't want to get into the, what I talked about with that whole class. I bring it up only in the context of this Ramban, about the idea of Nisim, of miracles. That we are all living miracles regularly. They're Nisim Nistaros. They're hidden miracles. Continuing the Ramban. Aval. Elu klolios ba'am. The Ramban sees this is very important. That the <clears throat> the blessings as well as the curses that are contained in this parsha are not directed towards the individual. That's in Sefer Shmos. When Sefer Shmos said, "You won't be sick. You'll have enough food. You'll have enough water. You'll have shelter." That was the individual. Excuse me. This is directed to the to the nation. 
And George just speaks to something you pointed out earlier. If our entire nation is kulam tzadikim, if we are a righteous people, if we are living a righteous lifestyle, if we are embracing righteous ways, and that's why George Lerman says, the Torah keeps emphasizing here that the blessings express themselves in conjunction with the land. I will give you the land. You will have security in your land. Shalom You'll have peace in your land. from the land. A sword will not pass in your land. Now these are miracles. And I tell you, we see that ourselves. Look at how fragile and how vulnerable our relationship with the land of Israel, the state of Israel is. Today is Thursday. The next seven days the, can turn on its head. These are historical moments. President Obama is giving a major address about the Middle East today. Prime Minister Netanyahu is visiting the White House tomorrow. Sunday, President Obama addresses APAC. Monday, Prime Minister Obama, uh, Netanyahu addresses APAC. Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to address Congress like the State of the Union, a joint session of the Senate and the House. These, Abbas's distorted revisionist op-ed in the New York Times this week, a journalistic atrocity that they could even publish such a thing. But everyone, I don't know, if anyone has a subscription still to the New York Times, God bless you. I don't know how you can pay, give them an, one penny of money when they can publish that kind of thing. But we're living in times in which we realize that all these brachos, I'll give you the land. Betach is from the word bitachon. You'll have security. Shalom, you'll have peace. And betach doesn't just mean security as in a really strong army on your borders. It means you'll sleep at night with a sense of security, that there's peace. Peace with your neighbors, that there's... And so on. These are, says the Ramban, to have a land of Israel, a state of Israel, to sleep at night with a sense of comfort that there's no one who wants to kill you and drive you in the sea and eliminate you, to feel that there's no <coughs> systematic effort in the world to delegitimize you. All of that, if you could achieve that, is nothing less than miraculous. Says the Ramban, if you have all of that, though it seems natural, what's the big deal? Sleeping at night? That's a miracle? That you have the sense of comfort and sense of security that you can sleep at night? That's a miracle? Says the Ramban, yeah. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. And so that these brachas and these clothes are not directed at the individual, they are directed at the nation. Even though these are hidden miracles, if you ask Holland, do you feel, I'm making up Holland, Holland, do you feel that you're in a miracle because nobody's declaring war on you, you have a sense of peace, you feel pretty secure about Holland, nobody's delegitimizing you, there's no anti-Holland movement, will they say, what a miracle we have. No, Olam Kiminhago Noeg, that's part of the world. They don't see it as a miracle. The Ramban says, to have any of these brachos independently, any individual, is completely natural. For a certain family to be blessed, to have prosperity and good health and no illness and an ease with fertility and so on and so forth, that's not a miracle. But what if you had a country where everybody had children? There was no fertility problems. And you had a country where there was zero unemployment rate. And you had a country where nobody robbed one another. Everyone left their doors unlocked and never locked your cars and your borders were left unguarded because there was no fear whatsoever. Now is that natural? So taken in isolation, each of these is a natural phenomenon, says the Ramban. Olam Kiminaga Noeg, nothing special. But add it all up on the promise that collectively, nationally, you have a land where there are no fertility problems, no unemployment problems, there's no stealing, there's no problems with security. That is a that is a uh, indeed a miracle, and that's what the Torah is promising us that if we are worthy. That's what we're destined to have in Israel. And if we don't have it in Israel, then the opposite is true. 
it reveals that we are unworthy. And the opposite is true when it comes to the close, says the Ramban. Says the opposite will happen if you had a country where illness was rampant. Everybody was coming down with terminal illness, with sickness. Nobody was having children with ease. There were fertility problems all over the place. We would say uh, there must have been a nuclear fallout there. We would say there must be some phenomenon there. So that's the kolos. That if that that's what could happen if we're not on our best behavior. It's a long Ramban. I don't want to read the rest of it. I encourage you to read it on your own. But that's the significant part that I'm extracting from the Ramban is uh, two pieces. One is the revealed miracle versus the hidden miracle. And the other is that these brachos and kolos are directed not at the individual, but they're directed, directed collectively at the nation. Okay, next pasuk, Yid Beis. So that we can say we did more than a pasuk today. Yid Beis. If you do all of the things I listed from the beginning of the parsha till now, says God, I will walk among you because halacha is a two-way street. It's interesting, if you stop someone in the middle of the night and say, does God keep halacha? They'll say, what are you talking about? Of course, that's ridiculous. This is the passing. God says, I will keep halacha with you. Halacha, again, is not a dry, sterile set of law. It's a journey towards intimacy, connection with God, a way of life. God says, I will meet you halfway. I'm going to take a walk with you. I will go on this journey with you. Mal, you can unplug it. Just unplug it. Unplug it. No one knows. And then you will be for me. You will be for me a nation. What does it mean? I will walk with you. Says Rashi, Pasuk Yed Beis. I am going to go on the hike with you, as if I am one of you. So while you are traversing in Gan Eden, I'll be with you. The imagery is beautiful. I'm coming out of my castle, I'm getting off my throne, and I'm going to go on this hike. We're going to go for a walk together. You're worried that uh, there won't be a connection? Know that I will be your, I will be your God. The uh, Sforno takes it a little bit of a different direction. If you look at Ravavadi Sforno. This Halacha implies without a destination. Halacha implies you're going here and there. You're traveling, you're walking, you're going around. There's not one set destination that when you get there you can say you've arrived. Right. If there's a destination, then you could say I've arrived. Like your GPS. You have arrived at your destination and it resets itself. So he says, unlike the Mikdash and the Mishkan, where God said, this is a designated destination. I am there to the exclusion and exception of other places. No. God wanders with us. Wherever we are wandering, He's wandering with us. Wherever you go, says God, I'm with you. I'm with you. So that's what the, the significance of the Hisalakti is, uh, the Svarno says, Halicha implies anava'ana, wandering here and there. That God, unlike the Menasati uh, Mishkani, I'll be in the base of Mikdash, is Vesalakti Bisokhem, I'll be with you wherever you are, wherever you go. The Ramban also says that. The Ramban says, "Shatia hanagasi b'chem mefursemes kemelach mishalach b'kerev machaneu maspik lehem kol tzacham." There's a derech divrei bris kipshutam. Vuemes b'chinyasa b'hem bevaday. It's the difference of the imagery of the king who sits on his throne, or the king who goes out to be part of his people. God says, "I will be out there with you, part of the people. I'm not sitting isolated. I'm not sitting on a pedestal. I'm not in an ivory tower." Okay, so that's the Vizalachi Bisokhachem. 
Sure. Isn't that when, when somebody does Beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful interpretation that that you might think that if I'm with you all the time and we start to have such a casual relationship, I'm a companion, so then I'm no longer going to be a deity. You won't see me as a god. So Ani Hashem Elokeichem will strike that balance. Rashi says, Why does all the brachos end with Ani Hashem Elokeichem? Because God says, all this blessing, you may doubt. Who are you to promise me when it's going to rain? How could you tell me I'm not going to have fertility problems? How could you tell me that my, my portfolio is going to skyrocket? How could you tell me? It ends, Ani Hashem Because I'm God. Kedai Ani Shetaminu Bi. It's worthwhile for you to believe in me, God says. It's worthwhile to stick with me. And that's why the next Pasuk. This is a very important point. The Kuzari, Rabbi Yudah Levi, makes this point. God throughout our Torah, and we throughout our liturgy and our Jewish calendar, keep referencing Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Why? Well, the Torah itself tells us, why did God take us out with such pomp and circumstance? Why did God snap His fingers and we'd be in the Midbar rather than in Egypt? Because Ari says, because God wanted us to refer to it for all time as His intimate involvement in the details of our life. The miraculous nation, nature with which He can bring redemption in an instant. So that's why we end this section. God says, all these brachos, <laughs> you're doubting that I can be the one to provide it? Are you kidding me? Don't you remember ten plagues? Can I remind you of a little thing called the splitting of the sea? (laughs) And you're doubting whether I can make you pregnant and have your field grow wheat? Not a problem. Not a problem for me. It's kedai, it's worthwhile for you to invest in me, to know that I can be the one. Now, I want to look at the kliyakar. This may be all we have time for to finish with the kliyakar because it's a long kliyakar. The kliyakar, Rav Lunchitz, Pasukid Beis, deals with an issue I alluded to in a Shabbos afternoon class a number of weeks ago. It was on Pesach, I believe, when I spoke about the resurrection and reincarnation. And I asked the question, resurrection and reincarnation, reincarnation is debatable. I pointed out there are two different attitudes towards whether reincarnation, Gilgulim, is genuine, is authentic. Uh, Does it exist? Resurrection, there's no debate. Not only is there no debate, one must subscribe to resurrection, though there's a fundamental debate between the Ramban and the Rambam and two schools of thought, how the resurrection occurs. And what's the purpose of resurrection? And what Olam Haba looks like? For the Rambam, when we die, souls are reunited with bodies for a very short period of time, and then the whole world ceases to exist. Poof, we go into a world of spirituality. Eternity lacks any physical component whatsoever. That's the Rambam for which he was castigated and excommunicated, and some thought that he was a heretic for believing that. The Ramban in his school feel, no, resurrection means the soul is reunited with the body, and that's eternity. The world to come has a physical component. The world to come is, post-resurrection, we remain reunited with the body forever. The details, I leave to you to work out. Do we come back young and vibrant? Do we come back old and decrepit? Do we come back... With gray hair, do we come back with the original color of our hair? Do we come back... What? As long as we have some. You and I would be happy to have any hair, right. If you come back, if you combine the whole issue of reincarnation, it complicates things terribly. Do you, do you come back... Which version of you do you come back as? The man, the woman, the dog, the leaf? Who is your wife? Who is your spouse? Who is your child? All of these are questions. For you it's simple. For you it's simple. Okay, for the Rebbe it was simple. If you look at the sources, you look at the, I gave you the handouts with uh, 40 sources on uh, Shabbos Cholamoid. It's, uh, it's complicated. In any case, I asked the question then, I asked the question then, why is it all such a question? Why doesn't Torah tell us? If you have to believe in resurrection, I'll put it to you this way. For the Rambam, one of the Yud Gimel Yikaram, one of the principles of faith is believing in Tchiyas HaMesim. You have to believe in the resurrection. I asked, Dr. David Chatz was here for Yantif. He's the head of philosophy department at Yeshiva University and a very, very prestigious uh, professor of Jewish philosophy. I asked him this question. God says, you can't get upstairs if you don't believe in the resurrection. 
Whose resurrection? The Ramban's resurrection or the Rambam's resurrection? Both. Do we believe one of them is not getting upstairs? Because they disagree. Or is it you have to believe in a concept of resurrection? You say to God, I don't know the details. You decide them, but I do believe something was going to happen. Then are you really believing anything at all? So that to me is left as... It startled me when I was preparing that talk, that fact, that for the Rambam, one of the Yid Gomel Yikaram is to believe in Tchiyas HaMesim, an imam in Be'munah Shlema, an imam in Be'munah Shlema in what? <laughs> and if the details aren't important, am I really believing in anything? But anyway, I asked, if it's so fundamental and axiomatic that I have to believe in it, why doesn't the Torah tell me? Where in the Torah does it describe Gan Eden, Olam Haba, Tchiyas HaMesim? It's chaser, it's... This basic, fundamental, foundational fact is missing. So is Chayr Vaonish, reward and punishment. And that's what the Kliyakar deals with here. No. That's what the Kliyakar deals with here. Perish Rashi Atayali Machem Began Eden Daito Lasalik Mealtor Atsenu Akdosha Kotoinu Ma'arer Haomer Yeshli Makam Lolon this is very relevant actually to this week. If anyone saw, there was an article with the great physicist um, Stephen Hawking, in which he was quoted as saying, The world to come is, story. is a fairy tale. So I tweeted on Twitter and linked to the article, and I said, Someone should tell him that some fairy tales come true. So, but anyway, he says it's a it's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. So that's the Kliyakar. Kliyakar says Rashi when he said Atayel imachem began Eden that the pasuk is ve'ayis ve'alachti imachem ve'alachti b'sochachem means I will be with you when you are reaping the world to come. The 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 blessings, the reward of the world to come, says the Kliyakar, that was Rashi's way of responding to those who think the world to come is a fairy tale. Those who think, there's no consequences, there's no accountability. And they think the whole purpose of this world is this world. This is it. And only it. See, some Gilgal, there's some reincarnation that's Drive me crazy, this fly. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I. I so I was mean to this kid growing up. I don't know what this uh, yeah, yeah. reincarnation of. Yeah. So, um, are we talking about when we die in this world and then we go to Gan Eden, or are we talking about the world to come when the Shia comes? That's part of the question. Are those two separate things, or are those one thing? Uh-huh. Well, right now, that's part of I spoke about it in the shear. There's a lot of that's part of the debate. It's not so simple. For the for the Ramam, there is no you don't have a world to come out of this way. It's all part of one thing. Anyway, So the Kliyakar says there a lot of have a lot have struggled with this question. How do you know there's a world to come? How do you know there's reward and punishment? Maybe what you see is what you get. It's all about this world. So he says a lot of struggle with this, and I have seven different answers. Um, he says, I have organized them here in a succinct manner, all seven of the answers, um, in order to silence those who impugn our sacred Torah. I don't know how many of them we'll have time for. Should we start? Yes. Yeah. Should I make this my Shabbos afternoon class and save yes. myself some work? Yeah. I was going to speak about Kabbalah this Shabbos afternoon because it's for Shema Bar Yochai, the Yeretzite. I was going to speak about what is Kabbalah and should you be learning it before 40 years old? Which I'm not really in a position to then speak about what is Kabbalah, but anyway, so I think I'm going to speak about Kabbalah. Hadassah Achas, the first opinion says the Kliyakar. Hudassah Rambam, Shekolelu Ayyudim Einam Ikraschar. Says the Rambam, these parshas, this parsha b'chukosai, the Tochacha, has nothing to do with the world to come. It's not a hint to scharva onish, reward and punishment of the world to come. For the Rambam, this parsha says, do the right thing. And God will take away the impediments that keep you from doing the right thing. So if you're doing the right thing, and you have to go to war, how are you going to learn Torah if you have to go to war? 
If you do, if you want to learn Torah, you want to do good, you want to volunteer, you want to do chesed, but you have to earn a living and you're struggling, how are you going to do it? So the Rambam says the brachas and the clause of this parsha are: you do the right thing, God will take away the impediments that keep you from doing the right thing. You're doing the wrong things, God will allow the impediments to have you stumble upon them. So he quotes the Kliyakar from Hilchus Tshuva where the Rambam says the reason the Torah never explicitly affirms reward and punishment is to keep us honest. It's to keep us to keep us honest to make sure that we are observing for the right reasons. Do things for the real sincere reason. Do things for the right reason. If I tell my kid, could you do me a favor and clear the dinner table? So if I say, and you, if you do that, I'm taking you out for ice cream. So then they didn't clear the dinner table because their Abba asked them. But if I say to them, could you clear the dinner table? Will there be a reward? No, who knows? We'll find, I don't know. Now, the ambiguity reveals to me whether they really did it for the right reason or not. Because it wasn't absolutely clear and explicit that was a schar, that there was a reward built in. So for the Rambam, this section has nothing to do with the world to come. This section is talking about in this world, reward and punishment. And in this world, God removes impediments to allow us to continue to do the right thing. And whether there's reward in the world to come, well, of course, we believe that the Torah doesn't tell it to us because it wants to keep us honest, it wants to keep us sincere, it wants us to do things for the right reason. That's number one. Number two, Hadea Hashnia, Hudas Rav Avram Ben Ezra, the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra says, you know why the world to come is not given as part of the Torah? Because the Torah is intended to be understood and embraced by every individual, by every Jew, by every human. And guess what? World to come? Deep, philosophical, difficult stuff. So God didn't put philosophy in this book because he wanted the book to be accessible to everybody. And philosophy, these issues to debate, world to come, reward and punishment, good things and bad people, bad things and good people, resurrection, reincarnate, these are complicated philosophical things. He left it out. He says it's difficult, the world to come, reward is a spiritual idea. We are physical beings. As physical beings, it is difficult for us to comprehend fully what a purely spiritual world will look like. Since we can't fully comprehend it and appreciate it, it was left out altogether. That's number two. Number three. Hadeh <laughs> So for the Ramban, Rabbeinu Bechaya, we just saw this Ramban, he says all of these things that are described, the blessings and the curses, these are not super, these are somewhere between physical and somewhere between natural and supernatural. On the one hand, whether it rains or not is a natural thing. Weather patterns, weather is natural. On the other hand, for it to always rain or never rain is a supernatural component directed by Hashem. Omnam Mashatala, for example, in the Brachos, Rashi says, one of the miracles, it says, the Geshem, the, the rain will fall bi'ito, in its time. What does it mean, in its time? Bi'itam, in its time. Rashi says, Bashash ain derech b'nei adam latzeis, kigon Rashi says, God will make it rain. You'll have abundance of rain. But I said, what do you mean? God's make, that's going to kill my tennis, my golf. I go for a walk every day with my wife. Are you going to rain? Go to shul, I'm going to get drenched. No. Be'itam, in its time, God says, the blessing of rain is it will rain when you're sleeping. You'll get all the rain you need without it ever compromising your lifestyle. So for the Ramban Rabbeinu Bechaya, that kind of bracha, is that natural? On the one hand, rain is natural. On the other hand, to have it always rain in a way that's perfectly convenient for you is nothing short of supernatural. (laughs) 
so the Kleyakar quotes Rabbeinu Bachai and the Ramban as saying, who says it doesn't say about reward in the punishment in the Torah? You know how he says it's about reward? Since the Torah teaches about kares, spiritual excision. Kares is a punishment having to do with the next world. That your soul will be cut off. Your soul will never return to God. Your soul will be limited to the experience of this world. So what can I deduce? What can I extrapolate? If a punishment is that my soul is limited to this world and is excised from a world to come, what does that mean that if I'm not bad, then my soul will be rewarded in a world to come? So for the Ramban and the Rabbeinu Bachaya, who says it doesn't tell me the Torah about reward and punishment in the world to come? Of course it tells me about it in the form of the inverse of Kares. Number four. Adaya Raviyasi. It's already late. Ooh, very late. give a fourth opinion, which is, God doesn't promise spiritual benefits. Why? Because who, is, who does He have to promise reward to? The skeptics. The skeptics and the cynics are the ones who say, why do this? Who knows there's reward? Well, if the reward is spiritual and therefore not perceptible, perceivable, then they won't believe it. So God therefore gives this reward about rain, fertility, prosperity, physical blessing, because since the whole system of reward is designed for the cynics and the skeptics, He's got to give a reward which would silence them. So if good things happen to good people, that will silence the skeptics, and therefore it's a physical reward which is offered and not a spiritual one. That's the fourth opinion. The fifth opinion... Before the Torah was given, they would worship all kinds of astrology and astronomy, they would worship constellations and stars, and they would think that that is what impacted. Whether it will be a fruitful harvest, whether it will be a positive rainy season, is dependent on the stars. So since God took away from them the ability to worship the stars and the constellations as a form of bringing their physical sustenance, He had to replace that with something else. And that's why He offers this as the reward and says, if you are observant of My word, if instead of worshiping them you worship Me, you'll get the same benefit, which is prosperity. And that's why the Torah here gives the brachos in the form of the physical, not in the form of the spiritual. That's the opinion of Rav Sadia Gaon. The sixth opinion is, So the fifth opinion, which is also found in the Kuzari, he says, sixth, I'm sorry, opinion is, what do you mean? God says, <coughs> I will dwell among you. If God could dwell among us in this world, if we can feel a spiritual presence of divine countenance and radiance in this world, then all the more we will feel that in the world to come. So by promising us that we can get a taste of the world to come in this world, what it tells us is, if the appetizer is so delicious, wait till you get to the main meal. And the seventh opinion, so the Sefer Ikarim says that all of this physical reward is... You have to understand, what's driving... I didn't point this out. Every time someone is explaining why the physical reward, what was bothering them was, why is the Torah describing that if you obey God's will, you get rain? Shouldn't it say you get world to come? Why is, why is it promising the physical world in this world that implies there is no benefit in the world to come? That's what all these answers are trying to overcome. So in the seventh, what he's saying is 
because this is a national promise, you're not going to nationally promise people a national experience in the world to come. That's promised on the individual. So that's why Kibar Aveimet says, That's Olam Haba. And Shiluach HaKain, we have a promise, that's Olam Haba, because those are mitzvahs the individual does. But here, since this is speaking to the unit, the community, Therefore, you have to give a communal reward, and a communal reward is expressed in the physical way through rain and safety and so on and so forth. So here the Kliyakra quotes seven interpretations about why is reward and punishment formulated in a physical component, not a spiritual? Why does the Torah never mention the spiritual reward and punishment? And seven different approaches, seven different answers and attitude sources. Uh, a lot more to talk about, but that's why we read the Parsha again next year. So Have a great Shabbos. I do.